The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Thank you for that, Noah. We appreciate you and the energy you bring and the worship in which you lead us, brother. What a joy it is to sing God's own words back to him. Let's pray as we begin to dig into Isaiah here. Lord, we do thank you, Lord, for the fact that wherever we are, whatever situation in which we find ourselves, Lord, you are there. And you are faithful. You are true to your promises, Lord. What a blessing that is. That even though, even the best of people will sometimes let us down, you never will, Lord. You're always there, always faithful. And we pray, Lord, that as we begin to explore Isaiah chapter 61 and 62 this morning, oh God, would you open our eyes to see everything in this text that you want us to see. And from that, Lord, to be changed in every way in which you want us to be changed, Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that just as you inspired these words to be written, that you would now apply them to our hearts. And may they find a place in our hearts from here on out. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't have to look very hard at all uh, these days to see evidence that we live in a very broken world. Uh, The news headlines are pretty relentless in bringing that to our attention uh, over and over, day after day. There's always a crisis of some kind in this world, right? Always conflict, always suffering, always violence. It just never ends. And that's why it's not at all surprising that a type of news reporting has arisen that's often been called good news or positive news. Uh, Not only do many major news outlets have sections of their websites that are devoted to good news, but there are even many outlets now that report exclusively on good news or positive news stories. And one of these that I saw recently is called The Happy Broadcast. And I actually saw it on the, the LCD monitors in the mall across the street. And so I, I looked him up online. And according to the official website of the Happy Broadcast, they offer, quote, anxiety-free news from around the world that is good for our mental health. Uh, so for example, did you know that a Danish company uh, now lets you grow trees from pencils. Their biodegradable pencils contain seeds and can actually be planted once you're done using the pencil. So hopefully that brightens your day a little bit. Also, did you know that millions of liters of beer that expired in Australia in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic has been converted into renewable energy and can power up to 1,200 homes per week? 
Also, two new studies have found that just saying hello to your bus driver, if you have one, can increase your happiness and well-being. So, I guess if I say hello to you, now you know maybe some of my ulterior motive in, in doing that. And then finally, a town in Costa Rica has, been awarded, has awarded citizenship to all of its bees in order to protect them and celebrate the biodiversity they create. So apparently, if we want good news from around the world, these are the kinds of stories that are available to us. And I really do appreciate what media outlets like this are trying to do. And I'm not picking on you if you read stories that are labeled as good news or positive news. Although I will say that if anyone here comes up to me and you know, starts talking about bees being awarded citizenship somewhere, I, I can't guarantee I'm not going to look at you kind of funny. But I can certainly appreciate the desire that many people have to hear encouraging stories. I like to hear encouraging stories. However, the very fact that there's a such thing as good news sites or sections of sites is itself an indicator of how broken our world is. It's so broken that we feel this need to insulate ourselves from stories of all the brokenness. And yet I think we're all aware that no matter how much we try to insulate ourselves, the brokenness of this world always seems to reach us and affect us anyway. It's like we can't get away from it. Reality has this way of crashing in on us. And I have no doubt that's a big reason why so many people have so much anxiety and in many cases even feel overwhelmed by their anxiety. Thankfully, though, as Christians, we have this unique ability to have a joy that rises above the brokenness of our world and even above the brokenness that may be present in our own personal circumstances many times. And let me just say to all who are Christians here that that ability to rejoice regardless of what our circumstances might be is a key component of our witness to the world. Here's what a very respected pastor and theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote several generations ago about this. As we face the modern world with all of its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian, who claim the name of Christ, should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. Here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart. People characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. You see, when the majority of people around us are anxious and uncertain and sort of on edge, while we, by contrast, are filled with peace and tranquility and even joy, regardless of the circumstances, that makes an impact. 
It gets people thinking, like, what do these Christians have that enables them to have such a peace and such a joy, even when our world is what it is? And the answer to that question is, of course, that our joy isn't built on shallow cliches or positive thinking techniques. It's not even dependent on good news websites. Now, our joy is rooted in the ultimate good news. The good news for a broken world that's spoken of in our main passage of Scripture this morning, Isaiah chapter 61 and 62. Look with me at the first three verses of chapter 61. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring, here it is, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So here we find the solution to the brokenness of our world. And it's not some new innovation or scientific breakthrough, nor is it any kind of novel psychological technique or mental practice such as mindfulness that allows us to transcend our circumstances by essentially tricking our mind. Now, these verses show us that the answer to the brokenness that's all around us is actually a person. And that person is Jesus. Even though the actual name of Jesus isn't mentioned in these, in these verses, he's the one to whom these words are attributed. He's the one speaking here. Uh, we see that toward the beginning of verse 1, where the speaker says that the Lord has anointed me. And that's very important because anointed one is what the word Messiah literally means. And throughout the Old Testament, we find prophecies all over the place of a Messiah or a national hero who would come one day to rescue God's people. And like I said, the word Messiah literally means anointed one, which is the way the speaker of this passage is described. And in case there are still any lingering doubts about who's speaking the words of this passage, those doubts should immediately vanish when we read Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is speaking in a synagogue and quotes from our main passage, these first three verses, and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So it's with great certainty that we can say that the main idea of our passage, both of these, these two chapters, is this. Jesus brings a message of good news for this broken world. That's the main idea of both of these chapters and happens to be summed up quite nicely in these first three verses here. Jesus brings a message of good news for this broken world. 
Specifically, verse 1 says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And that's best understood not simply as a reference to those who are materially poor, but also to those who are spiritually poor, which would include all of us in our natural condition apart from Christ. We're all poor in the sense that we're alienated from God because of our sin and have absolutely nothing to commend ourselves before God. Sin has caused us to have no merit whatsoever in God's eyes. Also, continuing on in verse 1, the speaker says that he's been sent to bind up the brokenhearted. So sin has wreaked havoc not only in our lives, but in our hearts as well, with the result that we are more broken and more damaged than we even understand many times. But Jesus binds up the brokenhearted, providing healing for our brokenness and comfort in our affliction and restoring us so that we're inwardly whole once again. We then read that Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives. Even though the Bible teaches that we're all enslaved to our own sinful desires and captive to the cravings of our sinful hearts, Jesus is our great liberator. He changes our hearts so that we're now able to live for God and to love God. And it's also with that in mind that Jesus proclaims the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And moving on to verse 2, Jesus also proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the current era in which we're now living, in which God gives an open invitation for anyone and everyone to receive the rescue he offers. And the text also says the day of vengeance of our God, which is a reference to the day when Jesus will return in the future to judge those who have rejected his offer of rescue. And by the way, thinking of these verses as a whole, I do want to mention that all of these references to things like liberty for the captives and the year of the Lord's favor seem to be drawing from something in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. This year of Jubilee is described extensively in Leviticus 25 and was basically something that God commanded the Israelites to observe every 50 years. So once every 50 years, the Israelites were supposed to take a whole year off of work with the promise that God would provide for them and were supposed to cancel all debts and free all indentured servants and return all of the, the family land that had been sold to its original owners. It was almost like pushing the reset button on society. In the words of Leviticus 25.10, people's job for that whole year was to proclaim liberty throughout the land, it says. And this year of Jubilee foreshadowed the liberation that would one day come in its fullness through Jesus. Jesus liberates us from our sin. His sacrificial death cancels all of our debts. And returning to Isaiah 61, all of that is in view here as well. 
These verses seem to be drawing on the language and the tradition of the year of Jubilee and looking forward in time to the liberation that Jesus would bring. And we read in the New Testament that when Jesus came, he did indeed proclaim all of these things that Isaiah 61 says he would proclaim. He brought good news to the poor and bound up the brokenhearted and proclaimed liberty to the captives. And not only that, but he also commissioned us to do the same. He said quite clearly in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now think about the significance of that. Even though Isaiah 61 says that Jesus will proclaim these things, Jesus turns around and commissions us to proclaim these things. He gives us the sacred calling and the privilege of sharing his good news with this broken world. I mean, guys, that's why we're here. You understand that? That's why we're left on this earth after being saved, is to proclaim this message. And, you know, the more we think about the brokenness of this world, the more passionate we should become about sharing this, this message, this good news that our world so desperately needs to hear. I mean, we really do have the answer and the solution to everything that's wrong with this world. And that answer, of course, is Jesus. The rescue he provides through his death and resurrection. The hope he offers even when everything else seems hopeless. And the cosmic renewal that he'll one day bring about and even now has already begun to bring about. I mean, this is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. Why would we keep it a secret? I'm reminded of the story, probably a legendary story, but still quite interesting nonetheless, of how the marathon got started. Perhaps some of you have heard this before, that there was actually a battle in ancient Greece around 490 BC called the Battle of Marathon. And in it, the Greek army was facing off against the Persian army. Now, the Persians vastly outnumbered the Greeks. And so it seemed like they were going to win. But through some clever maneuvering and strategic decisions, uh, the Greeks actually ended up beating the Persians and driving them and chasing them back to their ships in retreat. However, as the story goes, a Greek messenger named Philippides saw a Persian ship turn and begin to head toward Athens, the Greek capital. And he perceived that the Persians were going to go to Athens and then falsely claim that they had been victorious at the Battle of Marathon and overrun the city before anyone at Athens knew any different. And so Philippides actually ran from Marathon to Athens, uh, which was an impressive distance of about 25 miles, even over rugged terrain, in order to inform the people of Athens that the Greek army, not the Persians, had been the winners at the Battle of Marathon. 
Now, obviously, time was of the essence, and so Philippides ran the entire distance between Marathon and Athens without stopping at all and discarded his weapons and reportedly even his clothes so that he could run faster. That's the Greeks for you, I guess. Uh, he then burst into the assembly of the governing officials at Athens and exclaimed, Nenike common, which means we have won right before he fell down and died from the sheer exhaustion. So that's how dedicated he was to sharing the good news that he possessed. Now, like I said, all those details probably aren't historically accurate, but it's still a great story. And it illustrates quite well both the importance and the urgency of the message that God's given us to share. Just like the people of Athens desperately needed to hear the good news that Philippides possessed, the people around us, our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, they desperately need to hear the good news that we've been given to share. In fact, the good news that we have is so good and so critical that I believe it would actually be immoral for us to keep it to ourselves. Just like I'm sure we'd all consider it immoral for someone to discover the cure for cancer or something like that and keep that to themselves. Likewise, I think it would be immoral for us to keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves. Uh, and really, why would we want to anyway? I mean, what a privilege it is and what a joy it should be to share with people not just good news, but the best news in all the world. I mean, I honestly can't understand for the life of me why anyone wouldn't want to believe such an amazing story of rescue and hope and redemption. I appreciate what Tim Keller said one time to those who are skeptical toward Christianity. He said that even if you don't believe that the gospel is true, you should still want it to be true. Like, it's just that good. And what a privilege it is for us to be commissioned to share this good news with a broken world. So those are the first three verses of the first of the two chapters that we'll be covering this morning. So hopefully you've enjoyed that introduction. But since I guess we don't typically extend our gatherings into the dinner time, I had better hurry up as we continue through the remaining verses. So I'll just hit some highlights here. Moving forward to Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11. The Messiah is still speaking here. And he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So Jesus has clothed himself with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. 
That's what he came to bring. That's what this good news consists of. Since you and I could never save ourselves from God's judgment or make ourselves righteous in God's sight, Jesus came to provide the salvation and the righteousness that we so desperately needed. And he did it by living a righteous life in our place and then by dying on the cross in our place. Taking on himself the judgment that our sins deserved. And the result of his life and death and subsequent resurrection is that you and I can experience his salvation and be clothed with his righteousness as we put our trust in him. Him alone as our all-sufficient Savior. This is the very core of the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. And then going into the next chapter, we read this in Isaiah 62, 1 through 3. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. The mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of your God, or the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And so God's goal in redeeming us is to display to the entire universe the glory of his grace. Verse 3 describes the people God's redeemed as a crown of beauty in his hand. You might say that you and I were saved to be trophies of God's grace. I'm reminded also of Ephesians 1, which states three times that God saved us, quote, to the praise of his glorious grace. Man, what a God we have. And what a grace we've received. And then one final thing I'd like to highlight from this text is the expectation that God has for us. If you remember, I said that the main thrust of this passage is that Jesus brings a message of good news for this broken world. And of course, we already discussed how he, he commissions us to proclaim that good news as well. But there's another responsibility that we have in addition to that. One that's stated very explicitly in Isaiah 62 verses 6 and seven, God says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So think about these verses in light of the two chapters as a whole. And these two chapters, God's describing what he's going to do in the future through the Messiah. The events described here are presented as certainties. Yet interestingly, in these verses, God instructs his people to pray. 
He speaks of those who are godly as watchmen, who have the task of watching and praying for God to accomplish all of these things that have been mentioned and to fulfill his promises. He says that all the day and all the night, they shall never be silent, which means that they should never stop praying. He then says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Let me tell you something. Those words are, are some that are worth thinking about when you go home this afternoon. Take no rest and give him no rest. I mean, just to be open with you guys, I've had a hard time getting those words out of my mind this past week. <laughs> they have haunted me and challenged me repeatedly. Take no rest and give him no rest. Is that what your prayer life looks like? Are you that determined and that tenacious in your prayers? I mean, when you think about it, it's pretty incredible that God invites us to be so persistent in coming to him that we're actually giving him no rest. I don't know about you, but I like my rest. <laughs> I don't like it when people are that persistent with me. Like if my kids start asking me for something over and over and over again, I get kind of irritated, right? And if somebody else tries to be that persistent with me, man, I'm probably not gonna return their phone calls. It's rude and annoying and intrusive to keep asking someone for the same thing over and over again. And yet that's precisely what God directs his people to do here in verse seven. He says to give him no rest. I'm reminded of how Jacob was blessed when he wrestled with God in Genesis 32. God had mysteriously manifested himself in human form. And even after the two of them had struggled with each other all night and God had put Jacob's hip out of joint, Jacob was so determined to obtain a blessing from God that he said to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. God then told him that he had prevailed in his endeavor. And from that, we might say, that God, in a sense, wants to be overcome by our prayers. He wants us to pray until we prevail. Also, Jesus compared prayer to a man audaciously pounding on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night until the neighbor, after first trying to get the man to go away and stop bothering him, eventually gives in and gives the man what he wants. The moral of the story, guys, is that God wants to be bothered. We might even say he's waiting to be bothered. You know, we've seen in Isaiah 61 and 62 that God's determined 
to do certain things. And yet we also see from verses six and seven here that he's determined to do these things as his people are persistent in their prayers. That's just the way he's chosen to work. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to work in response to our prayers and not apart from our prayers. I'll tell you what, I've also been thinking about all this, not just with regard to us as individuals or to me personally, but also with regard to us as a church. Are we, as a church, making prayer the priority that it needs to be? To be honest, I'm not sure that we are. And that's why one of the things that the elders of our church have been seriously considering lately is starting a weekly prayer meeting each Wednesday at the new church building. Um, we're still discussing the details and it actually might be more of a prayer service with some music and different creative elements like that. But we're just getting the, the details, I guess. Um, and you know, we said, even as we were talking about purchasing this building in the first place, that the reason we wanted to get a building, or one of the reasons, was that it would give us more opportunity to, to have more ministry and to make a greater impact, right? And so I can't think of a more critical or needed ministry for our church right now than prayer. I mean, what better way to make it clear what we believe about the priority and the power of prayer than by making prayer the very first thing that we do with this new building. So like I said, we're still working on the details. We don't know exactly what that'll look like or at what point we might start that. But I just want to let you guys know that is something our elders are very uh, seriously and actively considering for the future. And I really think this might be the reason that we haven't seen more people come to faith recently. Just to be blunt, our church hasn't seen anybody come to faith uh, for a full year now. Uh, which has never happened before. Um, if memory serves correctly, I believe in 2019, God blessed us by allowing us to baptize seven people, five of whom were new Christians. That was the prior year, right? But so far this past year, I, I don't think we've had anyone that we know of that has come to faith through our church's witness. And of course, the easy thing to do would just be to blame COVID, <laughs> right? And, and there might be some truth to that. And there, it's very true that COVID has hindered our outreach efforts pretty significantly. But still, I mean, the fact remains that it has been an entire year with no one that we know of uh, coming to faith through, through our witness and being baptized. Guys, that should bother us. And it should lead us to pray like never before. And to give God no rest 
until he moves in a big way. We've seen in Isaiah that Jesus brings a message of good news for this broken world. So let's pray that God would open people's eyes to see just how wonderful that good news really is.